welcome to the weekly show where we take time to think deeply about Christianity and the Christian worldview to help you understand and know what Christians believe, defend it, and faithfully live it out. And so today's topic is one of those topics of faithfully living out the Christian worldview in prayer and also understanding what do we believe about prayer? How can we defend that prayer is real, that we're talking to God? And, and then how should that transform our spiritual lives as we have that conversation? So as you see there next to me is my guest, Dr. Kyle Strobel. He is a professor of spiritual theology and spiritual formation at Biola University Talbot School of Theology. He has written a series of books, but the one that we are talking about today just came out, I think, this week. Is that right, Kyle? Yeah, that's right. On the second. Yeah, on the second. All right. Just came out this week. Uh, where Prayer Becomes Real, How Honesty with God Transforms Your Soul. He co-wrote this, co-authored it with John Coe, who is also uh, in the Spiritual Formation Department at Talbot School of Theology. So, Kyle, first of all, thank you so much for coming on the show and joining me for this conversation. Of course, Ryan. It's good to be with you here, man. Yeah, it's great to, to have this chance. We met very briefly at the Evangelical Theological Society and have a brief little conversation in the lobby. But, you know, I, I was telling I was telling you that uh, th this is a topic I haven't covered really on the show and, and, and spiritual disciplines. And, and, and to me, I, I was unfortunately, I didn't have the chance to take any of your classes or really the <laughs> spiritual formation classes at Talbot. My, my degree at Talbot didn't have that as the core classes, but I took spiritual formation in my undergraduate degree. And those were that was a class that really shaped me and, and helped me mm. see the importance of these spiritual disciplines of prayer and fasting and solitude and silence. And so I'm just kind of curious as a professor of spiritual theology and spiritual formation, um, what would you say is is the significance, the the importance of these spiritual disciplines, especially what we're going to talk about today is prayer in the life of a Christian? Yeah, that's a good question. You know, I mean, I think for for the Christian, we are ones who have been invited into God's life. Hmm. That's the, the language Paul uses in Ephesians 2 and Ephesians 4. Um, negatively in Ephesians 4, when, when he talks about what gen the Gentiles who have not heard, what they're missing out on, he says is God's life. And in Ephesians 2, we find that we have access to God. And, and so for the Christian, you know, all spiritual practices, I mean, these aren't Aristotelian habituations of character. This isn't mm -hmm. just kind of a, a form of self-help. But what we used to call them were means of grace, which are our ways of embracing God in his self-giving. And so these are formative precisely because God has offered himself to us and his life shapes our own. And so that's why when you, you see accounts in scripture of virtue, let's say there are things like fruit of the spirit, right? Where they're not, they're not a fruit of the flesh primarily, right? The, the, uh, a Christian who's growing is not merely one who has the more fortitude than the person next to him or something, but it's a person who's embraced God's life deeply. And so prayer is, is in one sense, a kind of meta discipline. That means hmm. where you think of any spiritual discipline is, is a kind of way to participate in the activity of praying without ceasing that, that no spiritual discipline is kind of non-relational or something like that. We might say, right. It's, it's yeah. intrinsically relational precisely because of what, the character of Christian formation is. And so prayer becomes one of those disciplines that's kind of bedrock. You know, it's, it's um, for, for us at the Institute of Spiritual Formation at Talbot. I mean, this is the one we are kind of talking about all along the way, because it's going to turn out that all of your struggles and temptations in the Christian life in general will come out in your prayer life. Hmm. And so it's a little bit of like the Christian life in miniature. And so it's one of those things where the doctrine of God plays a lot of activities actually in prayer, right? like yeah. who you think God is, right? That's right. going to quite a, form quite a lot of what prayer is. Right. Um, you mentioned, you know, the, the questions about even the Trinity, you know, some of those questions come, you know, derive um, oftentimes from people's prayer lives, right? Like when they, they kind of realize the problems of their own views when they start praying, you know, <laughs> by praying to a group of people or like what's happening here. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I've, I heard one Christian once refer to prayer as a Christian as, as being on a conference call. And I was like, well, it's not quite right. <laughs> <laughs> and so there's, you know, it's, it's interesting because prayers are really a really fruitful place to kind of explore how our yeah. beliefs hit the ground. Right. And, and really what, 
what we believe and what does that actually mean in the presence of God? Right. Yeah. You know, it's it's interesting you mentioned that because, uh, you know, I had one of your colleagues there at Biola, uh, Fred Sanders, who's an expert on the Trinity. And I had him on to talk about the Trinity. And he talked about how sometimes people will pray and the way that they pray, it's like, that's heresy. Um, but, you know, but after it's not like he stops their prayer and says, you have to stop yeah, praying. Yeah. Like It's like normally by asking a few questions, what did you mean by that? And realize they don't actually hold to that heresy, but sometimes mm-hmm. it kind of comes out in that way. Uh, you know, now I'm, I'm curious because... You know, in writing this book where prayer becomes real, oftentimes mm-hmm. authors write books because they, they realize a need for it. And so mm-hmm. I'm curious, just in your time spent teaching this in spiritual formation at Talbot and, and, and having not just undergrad students, right? right? These are graduate students, often pastors that are taking these classes. Um, are you writing this because you see that there is a need within Christianity for a deeper recognition of like real prayer versus fake prayer? Kind of what is what is the what? what I guess, what is the purpose of your book is trying to get at that you and John Coe have seen here? Yeah, no, that's, that's a great question. You know, I, I, one of the things that we saw, and one of it, actually, to be honest, it came out of a question. So there's a New Testament scholar who kind of approached me at a conference and he kind of pulled me aside and said, hey, I'm, you know, it's a little embarrassing saying this, but like, I, I, I just have always struggled with prayer. Hmm. What is your go-to introduction to prayer? And I was like, oh, well, you know, you should read. Um, uh, <laughs> I just kind of blanked. And it yeah. wasn't that there's not plenty of good books on prayer, but something caused me to pause. And so I, I actually left the conversation. I really it kind of stuck in me a little. Like, what is it that caused me to pause? And what I realized is what I wanted to tell him. I, I wanted to tell him about a book that was theoretically rich. That was practical. And I can think of, a, you know, usually authors are choosing one of those, right? It's either just really practical. Here's nine forms of prayer you could pray. And it's just kind of, yeah. you know, right. or or it's just purely theoretical, which, you know, I'm a theologian. Great. I, I love the- theory. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's fantastic. <laughs> but I've read a lot of great books that are theoretical that haven't formed how I pray. Hmm. But then the last thing I, I really struggled, I couldn't think of anyone who did that we really wanted to do, was it had to be existential in our minds. Because there's a, most of us that grew up in the church or that have been Christians for a while at any given time, we've kind of picked up all these cliches right. that are true. I mean, it's not that they're not right, but we have this fantasy that, that somehow they're meaningful deep down in our lives. And, and what we find is, and I find this among my students all the time, where you know they, their views of God kind of fall apart when they pray. They hold mm-hmm. all these things things about God kind of theoretically and then in his presence they all drop or you know they'll they'll have really thought through accounts of the atonement and then their prayer life will be trying to atone to atone for their sins <laughs> yeah <laughs> and like so that struck us is really interesting that even though there's some helpful things shared and said theoretically and I think there are I think you can find those readily that they don't actually hit bedrock and I remember one of the things that really encouraged me when we were writing the book initially, I had a draft going and I was sending out the draft to some people. And one of the people who had been Christians for 40 years wrote back and she said to me that my whole Christian life, I've been told, you can say anything to God that you want. You can share all your heart to him in prayer. And she said, you know, I've always believed that, but I've never known what it meant until I read this. Mm. And that's what we were going for, because it turns out that you can't just send true beliefs into your soul and expect your soul to magically accept them. Hmm. <laughs> like you kind of have to attend to, well, what is driving my, my deep beliefs? What, and, and what are the reasons I hold those? And they're not arguments down there, actually. They're deeper things that have formed us, that have kind of hmm. shaped our souls. And so we wanted to unearth those <laughs> realities and that's what I couldn't find. I, I didn't know a book that did that. And so we, we kind of thought, you know, a good book on prayer should do all three of those things. It needs to yeah. be theoretical, practical, and existential. So that, that's what we really yeah. tr- tried to do here. 
That's so good. Well, I appreciate that. And I think that's a great kind of setup in, in, in understanding the importance of prayer, how our theology is informing our prayer and how this all really works together in the Christian life to, mm-hmm. to really, again, to live this out well, to, to, yeah. to be in the relationship I think that God has called us to be in. So if you're joining us live, um, send in your questions. We're, we're going to be looking at some misconceptions that people have about prayer, some false ideas, uh, answering some really basic questions that I think people ask that maybe we don't think about, but maybe we should ask. And then looking at some kind of a apologetic significance as well as, you know, some objections on from atheists and why prayer doesn't work. And then ultimately really uh, finishing up, looking at some practical steps that are presented here in this book uh, of praying well and really developing this real genuine prayer that hopefully we as believers have. So if you have questions, you can send those in. And I don't know if I said this, I'm Ryan Polly, weekly show, thinking deeply about Christianity. So we're going to jump in here. Um, you, you start off in your book by talking about some things that we need to unlearn. And so th- I think there's, th- there's like the false things that maybe most Christians understand and maybe like the outside world doesn't get. Uh, yeah. And so like we say, like Christians need to stop believing this. And it's like, well, people don't really do that. So, so for example, um, like we need to, you know, uh, I guess I'm trying to think which one I want to start with here for a second, but <laughs> may- maybe this idea of um, you can't just pray for whatever you want. Like, you know, you don't say like, I, I want a million dollars and God just going to give you a million dollars. But at the same time, we read in John 14, 6, where Jesus like says like, hey, pray. Uh, actually, I'll, I'll pull it up here really quick. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. So mm-hmm. h- how do we not read that verse and say, he says, ask me anything in my name, I'll do it. I ask things in his name. He doesn't do it. What, what am I supposed to understand mm-hmm. here? Yeah, yeah. You know, this is where, you know, I I think it's important to get a healthy sense of the whole canon of Scripture, (laughs) right? And and this is where we're grabbing a verse. This is where it gets us in trouble quite often, (laughs) you know. Um, But, you know, one of the things that comes clear in Scripture is that that prayer is this intrinsically kind of relational reality where God is calling us to himself and he wants us to name the truth. And so let's say you want a million dollars in prayer. Or let's say you want a million dollars. Well, I think you do need to sell out to God in prayer. And then you need to name what's going on in your soul before him in his presence. God, Mm. like, why do I long for money? Or like, what do Mm. I think about the world that makes me think if only I had a million dollars, all my problems would go away? Wow. Like, what's that about? See, I think the problem is most of us, here's what we do instead, right? We we realize, oh, I really want a million dollars. The Bible says I I shouldn't be greedy. No, that's that's not, uh, no. And we never actually, we end up talking to ourselves and actually kind of shaming ourselves hmm. instead of going to God and saying, God, look at this. I, I, I'm, my heart's attached to this. I kind of think if only I had this, then everything would go well. I actually want this more than you. Hmm. And the, the great gift of prayer is that God knows that's true, right? Like we don't, we're not talking to a, our earthly father who doesn't know that's true. And, and we're not having to say things to our earthly father like, I'm really not all that interested in you. I'm, I'm just kind of wondering how much money I'm going to get out of this. <laughs> but we could say that to God and he knows that's true. It's not like he's surprised by it. <laughs> and, and then that's the real gift. It, it's, it's being able to name the truth, but then recognizing, and there's a theologian who, um, one of the only kind of evangelical spiritual theologians of the 20th century was a guy named Donald Blesh. And I really like how he characterizes prayer. He calls it the struggle of prayer. And it's a struggle because it's always with another will. And this is, it gets to Jesus's prayer in Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done. Like we always bring our willing into prayer. Like I have, I want to will all sorts of things that God's will evidently isn't all that interested in. And I've got to deal with that. That this is not, because it's relational, God is not a genie who's just going to kind of, as long as I rub the lamp the right sort of way and ask right. him the right, that he's just going to grant me my wishes. Right. Um, God ultimately wants what is good and he wants things that are according to his willing. And so I, I actually have to come into contact now with his will. And that that's a disorienting reality. If we think that that God is there to just kind of fulfill my deepest desires um, I'd say God's actually there to change your deepest desires and then to fulfill them. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so, yeah. I mean, that's, if we're not set up for that, then that's going to be disorienting. It's going to feel like God's ignoring our desires. Yeah. Now, do you find that like what you just described of this idea of like, 
seeing God as kind of this genie or this vending machine that, you know, kind of he's just there to 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 run to when we have a problem and he's going to fix the problem. Like, I feel like at least in the circles that I'm in, like it's, it's easy to be like, hey, that that's wrong. Uh, that's mm-hmm. not how God runs. And that's like a secular understanding of how what they think Christians are doing. But if you found that like Christians are holding that view or or is that mainly just the outside perspective of what Christians believe, but we don't actually pray like that? Or is it maybe what you described before of like, well, we know it's not true, but we pray that way. I think that's closer to reality, actually. Yeah, yeah I, I think if you, it's funny, like with prayer, that that's what I think is so important about thinking through what prayer is for us personally, because it exposes what you deeply believe. And so most people, we would never actually write these statements down as like, this is what I'm about. <laughs> like, this is what I believe to be true. Yeah. Um, and, and the difficulty is that we don't, you know, prayer is such an isolating place for so many people. Hmm. Not only does it feel that way, like it feels like I'm just alone talking to myself sometimes, but no one actually knows what they're doing in prayer. Like no one else knows what they're doing in prayer. It's just like most people, they're, they're utterly alone in their prayer life. And, and we don't realize how actually crazy making some of our prayers are and, and how we we pray in such a way that that makes no sense of what what we de- what we actually claim to be true about God. It's like my students who are trying to atone for their sins in prayer. If you ask them about the atonement, they'd give you a really good answer. Right. Right. <laughs> and yet suddenly, you know, and I see this with folks who, you know, often something goes wrong, quote unquote, in prayer. Usually it means their mind's wandering or they fall asleep or something that is like kind of mirror that says you're not doing this well. And then they turn to themselves and often will berate themselves or try to kind of get themselves excited or, you know, wake up or whatever, kind of. And and oftentimes they're, they're kind of play acting in God's presence. And I think one of the things that tends to happen is there, it's almost as if they're showing God, I'm going to take care of this. You stay back. Yeah. And it's this almost pagan kind of, I can kind of somehow placate you through, through a kind of vicious activity against myself. And, and again, they would never think to say something like that. They never, they don't know they believe that about God, but in prayer, we're exposed to what we actually think. And that it's, it's humbling in that regard. We have to really kind of sit and consider, wow, deep down, I I, I might not believe God is who, who I, I claim I believe he is. Yeah. Or I know, I know many kind of closet tritheists in prayer. Yeah. That's uh, you know, really and, good. Yeah. Uh, Becca, we'll get to that question in just a moment. Um, I, I'm curious though, Kyle, and what you were just talking about is the first chapter in your book is talking mm-hmm. about this idea of the wandering mind and, yeah. and that this is something that we need to unlearn. And you just brought up that, you know, sometimes Christians, you know, their mind wanders or they fall asleep and then they kind of berate themselves. So what is it that, at least in chapter one of your book, what are you trying to get across of that we need to unlearn this, I guess, this concept that the wandering mind is a bad thing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because it's so universal. Like, I don't know why, but we kind of universally think a wandering mind is somehow us being bad. <laughs> And it's which is funny. Yeah, it's like I'm distracted. I should be better. I mean, right away that means prayer is primarily a performance. Hmm. I'm not doing a good performance. God in this role is kind of like probably a little like an earthly father who's getting annoyed at your un- inability to follow directions, <laughs> right? It's like and, my it's, yeah, it's like a student. It's like come on, stick with me. Let's go. That's right. Stop <laughs> falling asleep. Get your act together. You know. Yeah. And. And instead, what I want to say is that, and what we want to say in the book is that, you know, when you look at Jesus, when when Jesus confronted people, they kind of came out of themselves. Like I think of Peter who falls at Jesus's feet and says, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. Like, and, and Jesus is constantly kind of naming and creating context to awaken the truth. One of my favorite is when he asked the disciples, uh, you know, Jesus is going to Jerusalem. So he's on the road to die for them. And he's like, so what are you guys talking about? And like, they're debating which one of them is the greatest. Yeah. <laughs> it's just this, this kind of comical scene. Or or James and John are like, Jesus, should we call fire out from heaven to consume the Samaritans? And you just got to get, it's the one part I wish Luke would have said. And Jesus looked at them and thought to himself, <laughs> you know, like, what does what Jesus <laughs> think? He's like, like, they were there, right? On the kind of love your enemy stuff. And right. And yet Jesus is kind of exposing them. And in a sense, when Jesus's presence kind of just 
awakens the treasures of the heart. And so that's precisely what's going on in our prayer life. Like to pray is to draw near. And when we draw near to God, our heart shows us what we treasure. And so the wandering mind is a gift because the Christian life is about humility and about embracing God's power in our weakness and not our strength. To kind of berate yourself because you're not praying well is to think that what God is looking for you to be is stronger. And we've already been told, we know he's told us in 2 Corinthians 12, my powers made perfect in your weakness. Hmm. And yet we we kind of interpret weakness as badness. Hmm. And so I want to say, look, a wandering mind is an opportunity to see the truth so that you can abandon your life to God in full. And that's one thing I, I love about your book is, is that you address kind of these issues, but every single chapter ends with a practice hmm. where I think in the introduction, you even said to the extent, we literally want you to stop reading the book and, <laughs> and, and do the practice. Yeah. And, and so talking about this idea of, of maybe instead of a wandering mind, like, hey, prayer, when our wines wander, how, what does it look like when your mind is wandering? How do you pray through that? Um and truly kind of have this openness and humility mm-hmm. that you talked about there. Now, another thing that you mentioned I would love to, to touch on is that you talked about this idea of, of alone in prayer and that that is sometimes maybe a fear or something for people. And I remember back to my spiritual disciplines class in college that uh, one of the activities that we had to do was spend like six hours alone in silence out in nature. Yeah. And that was like before... Like that, that was before, I think, that when technology like really took over in consuming our lives. And, mm. and, and I mean, that, like I didn't have an iPhone at that. Like there was no like, like that was before the iPhone. That yeah. was before that kind of stuff. And I feel like now, like we are so connected mm. that like we have a hard time being alone. And in, in my in one of the talks I give on entertainment, I, I play a part of a 21 Pilot song. It's called car radio where he says, you know, my car radio is stolen and now I just sit in silence and, and the silence <laughs> is violent. I, I can't hide what's, mm-hmm. what's on my, you know, what's inside of me. It's just coming out. And, and this idea of this difficulty being alone. And so I, I'd love for you to maybe talk a little bit how being alone is maybe a good thing and allowing that genuineness yeah. to come out. But also maybe how, how do we overcome as a culture, the difficulty of being alone when the moment we're alone, we pull out a phone. So we, we, we're constantly occupied. How do we just get into that place and, and deal with that fear of like, ah, is something going to come out? Yeah. 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 Now I remember I, I, the first time I lived alone, it was, I was doing a second degree in seminary and I had no internet and no television and people would walk into my apartment And it was funny, like they would shrivel, like it felt oppressive to them. (laughs) And it was funny to watch because it was just like, are you okay? (laughs) And, you know, I culturally, you know, it's funny, my my PhD work is um, was in Jonathan Edwards. And so I I, I spend a lot of my mental energy living in the 18th century. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's, you know, he was in mid kind of early to mid 18th century. And he has these funny lines when he's telling his daughter, you know, you, you need to make sure you break away from the crazy kind of chaos of this world. And I'm like, you didn't have electricity. <laughs> what <laughs> chaos are you talking about? And I just don't know, you know, you look at modern technology. I mean, it, it is oppressive and, and it, it, it does something to our humanity that is in my mind. And, and I think there's a lot of evidence to this. It's kind of dehumanizing. Mm-hmm. And that that constant kind of it, it, it kind of grates on the soul, but it doesn't feel like grating. It kind of feels it feels more pleasurable than that, which is why we give ourselves to it. Um, but getting away from that helps you to kind of reorder and and really see reality for what it is. Like I remember after, you know, not seeing a television for really years in, in many ways watching commercials and just kind of laughing at what I was seeing and how comical it was, like how ridiculous the manipulation was. How and I, was, I remember it struck me in a way I never would have noticed before because it, I was just so inundated in it. And I think that's for, for Christians in particular, you know, we need, you know, to cultivate faith, which is a kind of seeing what we believe is true about reality that our eyes won't show us. Hmm. I mean, scripture talks about faith in that way at times, 
um, where you have faith as a kind of sight. And you see this in Corinthians, for instance. And Jesus is constantly calling us to look upon the world in a way that he says is true, but our eyes won't give it that, right? Our eyes won't tell us it's true. Like the last aren't first, Jesus. That's just not how the world works. <laughs> the last are last, the first are first. And we say, well, wait a second. No, but Jesus said that is how the world really works in his kingdom. And so what does it mean to believe that's true? Like, what does it mean to actually see the world that way? Well, it takes that kind of silence and solitude to help us see how actually we have become so moored to this present age that we now look through. It's the water for the fish, right? That we, It's the kind of air we breathe. We can't, we don't even see it any longer. Mm. And so that's, that's something silence and solitude does, I think, profoundly well. And, and you're right, it, it awakens these things that we see, wow, there's a lot of noise in my life that allows me to hide. Mm-hmm. And and I don't even know what I'm hiding from half the time. So yeah. we, if we're, we're going to actually see the truth, we need, we need to embrace and cultivate that in our life. Yeah, that's so good. Now, talking about what people say in their prayers versus kind of what they believe, a, a very common thing that you hear is as people are praying, especially in group prayer, not alone, uh, they all of a sudden quote Matthew chapter 18 and say, where two or more are gathered together, you are there as kind of this we're here together now, now God listens to us, or maybe I don't know exactly what they mean by it. Uh, How do, is, is, how do we understand this? Maybe I think common misconception of, of, is that related to prayer? How does it, does prayer more powerful when you get into groups and you're praying together as a group than when you're praying by yourself? Um, How do we understand that aspect of prayer? Yeah, no, that is, you hear that a lot. It's funny, you know, in the, in the context of what Matthew's doing there, you know, typically the way that like at least New Testament scholars would understand that is that that that, that passage is actually about church discipline. Right. And, you know, and so it, but it is funny because you could tell, because I remember as I mean, I was a little kid, I would hear that verse and I and kind of be like, okay, that, but I never played out the implications because the implications, if you really think through it, are really odd like like well you know god's not gonna just listen to me but if i had someone with me then he'd listen you know right and i think the problem is it plays into a temptation we have which is one of the deepest temptations of the flesh which is what do i need to do to get my tethers into god Hmm. and and much of the christian life much of our failures to live christianly are our attempts to tether god to our activity and kind of forget or maybe reject that God is utterly free. I, mm-hmm. I think of it as similar as it's, it's how we recreate the Sinai scene when Israel melts down a bunch of gold into golden calves. They're not trying to worship a different God than the God on the mountain. They're trying to use Egyptian worship technology to control the God of a mountain that it looks like consume Moses. Mm. <laughs> that, that's what's going on there. And, and I think for many of us, we are looking for things. And for some, it might be just like forms of prayer. Like, like maybe if I say the words in these sorts of ways, um, our prayer almost takes on the feel of a kind of magical formula or the idea of if two or three are gathered. So if I just get enough people praying for me, then um, prayer will come true. You know, Ben Franklin used to mock this idea um, a lot. Um, this is me living back in the 18th, 18th century. But uh, Ben Franklin <laughs> used to kind of make fun of like, we could tell who's going to win the war based on how many monks the Catholics have on their side versus how many, um, what, what do you say, how many old women the Protestants have praying. And there's like, he would just weigh like, well, who's God going to go with? Where are the numbers? You know? <laughs> and, and you get this kind of crazy notion that um, that if we could just kind of, add enough heft to our prayers that somehow right. we, we can kind of move God. And so that that's what, we, you know, we always need to be aware of ways that we're trying to kind of tether God to our activity and, and kind of undermine his freedom. That, that it, It's kind of the opposite of Jesus is not my will, but yours be done, right? Yeah. Whereas Jesus's prayer kind of, our prayers need to conform to that reality of his. Yeah. It's amazing as I as I looked up trying to just find as many examples I could of misconceptions or false ideas about prayer is, is how many um, fit that idea of yeah. if we just get enough people or if we get the right mm-hmm. words or if we do something, uh, if we follow this certain pattern and it's this very you know, me- mechanistic 
do this cause and effect relationship rather than realizing God as a, as a being that we desires to be in relationship with us. Um, now, one, one kind of question I have about that will come up here in a moment. And so I've gone down a few rabbit trails. I want to come back to something you said at the beginning of this idea of God changing our desires and then fulfilling them and, mm-hmm. uh, and kind of the million dollar question I asked you, right, of, of what if I pray for a million dollars and, and, and wanting our heart to be good. I think the question and, and the problem a lot of Christians have is, but what about what I'm praying for actually is good? Like I, I, yeah. I check my heart, like my, you know, my family member is sick. Uh, my, uh, we're praying for a child and, and the oh. child is not being given. And so like, God, I have this desire and the desire is a good thing. Um, and my heart, I think is right, but it's still not being fulfilled. How, how, how do we understand that? Yeah. Well, and this is, this is, this is hard, right? Cause this is where it gets really existentially difficult. Yeah. And and, you know, one of the things that I discovered in my own prayer life a long time ago is that I, the God I was praying to wasn't conforming to the God I found in Scripture. And there's a lot of things God in Scripture does that I don't get. Like, you know, Jesus, you know, the spirit comes upon Jesus after his baptism and he sends him in the wilderness to be tempted by the devil for 40 days. And um, or 40 days of fasting and then to be tempted by the devil or. God gives Paul the gift of a messenger of Satan, which is a thorn of his flesh to keep him humble. And I, that was never a possibility for me. Hmm. Like, you know, like that, that's God doesn't do that kind of stuff. Or, you know, you think of Jesus, the perfect sinless son who did everything perfectly. Right. And he has to pray, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is this is where our prayers, you know, we really need to kind of, you know, feel the weight of the fact that as Christians, we pray within the son of Jesus. We pray within the son and therefore the life of Jesus is is kind of giving us the contours of what our prayer life will be. It could be that part of our prayer life will be that those healings that Jesus did that we see and, and God gives us the child we long for. God heals our uncle, God, you know, but there's Gethsemane, there's the mm-hmm. desert, there's the cross, there's, and you see this continually through scripture where for whatever reason, you know, one of my favorite passages is, is when God takes his people out of Egypt, it's very visible, very powerful, very like, I'm your God, I'm on your side kind of a thing. And then he marches them for three days without food or water. And it's like, well, wait a second. <laughs> like, back when you were doing all those plates, I thought this was going to go better for us. Like, yeah. Shouldn't, you know, why are we hungry? It didn't make any sense. And and God, you know, it's funny because in, in Deuteronomy 8, 2, we're told he leads them in the wandering to show them what is in their hearts. And I think a lot of a lot of our struggles is that God is showing us what is in our hearts and he's leading us to 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 kind of name, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And he's not denying that we're praying for good things any more than Jesus was praying for good things when he asked for the cup to be passed or Paul, you know, it's, he still should have prayed, Lord, take this thorn from my flesh, Lord, take it away from me. But he then has to hear no, because my grace is sufficient for you for my power Mm -hmm. is made perfect in your weakness. And, and, and so we, we need to kind of allow scripture to just kind of give us the shaping of, of, of what this will be. And again, it's, it's that weird reality that, we are we are with a, with another it's 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 another and another will it's not god isn't this vending machine even for good things right right um, and, and and he can both affirm that's a good prayer and that's a good thing to long for and still say no hmm. and, and god for whatever reason and i think of job here is an interesting book where where job has to appear before the whirlwind and has to kind of hear I'm just not going to answer those questions. Yeah. You know, and, and that's, that's part of I, I, God not being the kind of God we want in a lot of ways. And he really isn't like, he's a very different sort of God. And, and yet he, he consistently kind of gives himself the, the alibi, so to speak of, I, I just am the God who is, hmm. you can yeah. not like that, <laughs> but I am the God who is. That's you know? how it is. <laughs> And that's interesting because it's hard because we, we also trust that, that he is love 
and, and that may not feel very loving to us. So when you're praying and God answers no, is there a, a certain amount of time that you pray for something and then stop because you assume the answer is no? You, you sometimes hear people that pray about something for 30 years, 40 years, and then mm. it gets answered. Uh, or is that a selfishness? Some people's like, well, I prayed for a year and got an answer, so maybe I need to stop because it's obviously not, you know, uh, what would you recommend as far as the amount of time we pray for something when a prayer isn't being answered? I really think it just depends on what it is, you know, and I, I, I think the longer we pray for it, the more we have to wrestle with our willing and God's willing. And I, I don't think there's, you know, if Paul would have kept praying, Lord, take this thorn out of my flesh. I, I don't think God would have seen that as a bad prayer, but I think Paul would have had to continue on by saying, but if you don't, not my will, but yours be done. What does it mean to be faithful here? And, and I think that's that's something that's probably the most difficult to learn as a Christian, that our goal isn't to get in a different place than we're in. It's to simply pray, how can I be faithful here? Um, if we find ourselves in the desert like Israel, it's not, how do I get out of the desert? It's, okay, Lord, you we're here. <laughs> what's faithfulness do you look like? Look in the desert. And what's faithfulness look like in the Mount of Transfiguration? You know, what's faithfulness look like when my when my child is healed? What's faithfulness look like when my child isn't healed? Right. I mean that yeah. and and that is that is difficult because I think when we still when we still want a God tethered to ourselves, we want a God that furthers our desires. Mm. And that's not a bad desire in one sense. But we always have to lay it down and and say, but not my will, but yours be done, um, whatever yeah. that is. Yeah. When we are praying, so I just have a kind of a lot of just really kind of practical questions. Some are more silly, some are more serious. Uh, mm -hmm. But you, you sometimes hear this idea of you. It's not a prayer is not a one way street. It's not just you pray. It, it's a conversation. But I know that when I pray, I, I don't hear the audible voice of God. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so it's not a conversation like I'm talking to you right now. And totally. and so yeah, yeah. what. I guess, what should we expect as far as the hearing from God part of prayer? Uh, are we supposed to sit in silence and hear God? And then people say, hey, God told me. It's like, but did he tell you? Is that, you know, uh, <laughs> yeah, what, are yeah, we supposed, yeah. what should we expect to hear from God in prayer? Yeah, well, that's a great question. You know, I, I worry about naming expectations, because again, like one of the things I want to stick on theologically is our God is utterly free. May God light a bush on fire that doesn't burn in your presence while you're praying. <laughs> sure, he's God. He can do what he wants. But, um, may he be utterly silent. Sure. Neither necessarily tell you anything about your, how well prayer is going. And you can't hold God to either. I personally don't love the language of hearing. I actually think it's a faulty image in a lot of ways. I I, I tend to find that God, I, I tend to think God functions more aesthetically, maybe in a kind of visual mode. So something like illumination. Hmm. And the thing, the difference is that if someone like, like whenever someone says, well, God told me this, I, I, I have all sorts of worries. Because the yeah. second, to your point, I ask questions and it clearly God didn't tell them anything, right? Like, like what they're saying is I have this instinct and it's, and I think God's leading this. And usually if I change the language for them, they agree. It's like, oh, it was like, like, are you saying this kind of person or maybe this path or this idea or something was kind of illumined and it came to your attention? Like, yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, it's kind of, the problem is by saying God says we cut out any room for discernment. Right. I don't need discernment if someone tells me something. <laughs> right. Hmm. But what we find is that that's that's not. You know, that's not how God's action functions in this in this age. Right. It's it's I need discernment. We need to wrestle. We see through a glass darkly. Like, what does it mean to. So when I ask God, you know, to, um, you know, show me what is in my heart and something comes up like I want to that could just be me. Right. And, and, and so I need to hold open these things and say, OK, Lord, what? You know what? What do you have for me? And really entering into into a deeper dis, um, discernment process about what that means. I I find most Christians I meet who talk this way. One of the big problems is they actually assume that their conscience is God's voice. 
And so their conscience pangs. And Paul has already told us in 1 Corinthians 8 and 10 that your conscience can be wrong. Right. So that's a problem. <laughs> but whatever their conscience is, they assume is God. And so they have these and they, you know, Paul, it's funny because Paul actually talks pretty readily about things that he calls the accusing thoughts or the defending thoughts in Romans 2, the conscience he uses elsewhere. In 1 John, we hear about one's heart condemning oneself. Like there are these inner dynamics of the soul that at none of these places do the biblical writers want to make these God. <laughs> and, and so we we have to be very careful about how we are discerning god's guidance and leading mm -hmm. and i think all too often we, we we kind of we actually turn to language that leads us away from discernment because deep down we don't want to have to discern we don't want to seek wisdom we just want to know what to do and i i think a lot of christians really just wish that god was gps for their soul and he'd just say okay turn right now okay <laughs> turn like you know it's like they could just kind of follow him around because then I wouldn't have to wrestle with seeing through a glass dimly or a mirror dimly. And yet that's precisely what we should expect in the age of faith. And so I, I worry about that language in that regard. Um, yeah. I, I do think it's conversational in the sense that it's relational. And even okay. though, you know, and that that's, but it's obviously a very unique kind of relationship, yeah. right? Um, it's, it's one where we, it, it's always personal and therefore I'm never before an object. Yeah. but it's, I, I am before one who is wholly other. Yeah. That's so good. Yeah. It's like, I always worry too. Cause it's like, God told me or God said, or I heard it's like one, how do you know that's not your conscience? And two, sometimes it's like, well, God said, I need to make disciples. It's like, no, that's what scripture says. So often it's, we're remembering something that scripture says. And I think that's an illuminating thing. Here's, here's a truth in scripture that you need mm -hmm. to reflect on. And so it's kind of, uh, yeah, I think that's, that's a good way to put it. A question came in here for the live chat for you is, uh, do you have any tips? Um, I don't know why that, I always shows up at the bottom first. Any tips in praying for your children? Um, Becca, Becca has a young, a young son, um, yeah. less than a year old. Uh, what would you say about praying for your children? Yeah, no, that's a great question. You know, I mean, I, I would say this. So so one of the things that in my own kind of journey with the question of prayer that has been probably most convicting over the last five, six years, um, it, I kept on getting asked questions about intercession years ago when I would be talking at churches on prayer. And I I wasn't interested in talking about intercession. And I kind of realized I, I, I stopped taking it seriously in a sense not that i didn't intercede for people but it was like it was almost like i began to like well there's like this prayer is better it's like a more more kind of serious and difficult and whatever hmm. and so for the last five years or so i've really wrestled through intercession and i have and i have children of my own so i i certainly understand this and you know one of the interesting things about children in general is that i if i could put this this might sound weird but i think you'll relate to it i is that children aren't born external to you but internal to you so a child is something that is born internal to your self-loving. There's a real sense where you love your child precisely because you love yourself. It's exactly how Paul talks about how husbands should love their wives, by the way. And, and it just works differently. Like you kind of love a spouse into union with yourself to become one flesh. Your children start that way, right? You don't even know them yet. And yet you love them more than you like. You would throw yourself in front of a train for your infant, right? Like there's, there's something with that child's internal to you. The And whereas a spouse becomes more in union with you, ideally through time, you kind of individuate a child <laughs> over time, right? They kind of, you're kind of pushing them up to become an, their own person, right? And you're, you're there upholding them. The difficulty then is they're very much tied into your own life, your desires, your hopes, your worries, your fears, right? It's all wrapped up in your child's right at the heart of all those things. And so one of the things when, when you, when you're praying for your child and you're kind of holding them op open before the Lord, you're maybe you're praying for their future spouse or they're, they're making, you know, knowing the Lord or, you know, whatever it is, their friendships or whatever. We're also having to kind of navigate again, not what I will, but what you will, right? Like there's, Lord, I have all these desires for this child. Like there's all these things that I, I worry about. Can I trust them to you? Mm. God, God I, I really want this for them. But Lord, I, it, it, they are yours even more than they're mine, 
right? Mm. In, when, we, when we intercede for someone, I worry that oftentimes we are very disconnected from how we relate to the person. And for sometimes that means our envy seeps in or our anger seeps in. With children, there's all sorts of other things that seep into that. Fears, worries, desires, and things that we need to kind of hold open before the Lord such that prayer actually will become a place that illumines how how much we are invested and you know this is you know the advantage of this is you know i often tell this story like my 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 daughter plays soccer and i remember watching her two soccer coaches screaming at their daughters stop crying <laughs> and you know there's a real that works sense. every time yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, it didn't, didn't help. But there's a real sense when they're just yelling at themselves, right? Like they're, they're kind of, they're, tr they're they're kind of yelling at miniature versions of them. Like, like they're, they're projecting their, the, to their little boyhood selves out on the soccer field. And their daughters were kind of wrapped up in their, their drive and their grandiosity and their desire to win and to dominate and all sorts of other things. Well, when we pray, we begin to see some of that. And, and again, we can kind of hold that open to the Lord. And so, um, and, and then the other thing I would say, this is very different. And, and if you're only one, you're a little while away from this, but as they grow up, I would say, just invite them into um, praying about difficulties. Hmm. You know, like that's, you know, don't, don't just talk about difficulties that come up, but, but invite yeah. them into those things and, and um, you know, help them see that our first turn is a turn to the Lord um, where that really gets modeled. Yeah. Now the opposite of praying for a difficulty uh, is that some people talk about whether we should or should not pray for like petty things. Like, do you mm -hmm. pray for a parking spot when you're at a busy crowded supermarket store? Do you, you know, <laughs> is that a waste of time? Uh, how do we understand praying for these kind of petty little things? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a funny one. Yeah. It's, <laughs> You know, it, but it is interesting because it does. I mean, there's part of me wants to say, no, no, if, if that's your desire, you should lift that up to the Lord. But simultaneously, we also have to lift up the Lord. What's going on in that desire? Like, why, why do I want to beat that guy to the parking spot? <laughs> or, you know, it's the competitive do... nature. I didn't win on the soccer field. I got to win in the parking space. <laughs> That's right. You know, and I, I think we, we actually, I think we need to use those things to kind of end. So, well, let me use this example. because This is from the book. Like, so one of the, one of the kind of prayers we talk about is a prayer of examine. So at the end of your day, you're kind of right. walking through. And one of the things we might do is to think about those things. Like, you know, Lord, I, I really wanted that parking spot. Like that was something that was really frustrating me. Um, what is that about? Hmm. Like, like what, and what I find is, you know, I'll do this where I'll be like, Lord, I, when I was doing the dishes, I was angry. <laughs> I hate the dishes. <laughs> Who loves the dishes? Yeah, I, like I did, but I just despise the dishes. And I'm like, Lord. <laughs> and you know what? What becomes clear to me is like, wow, God, I, I just kind of think life should go my way. Hmm. Like, I just think I, I, I should pull into a parking lot and a spot should be right there, right in front. <laughs> <laughs> the dishes should never kind of crash on the ground or fall. There shouldn't be water everywhere. They should be done. I shouldn't have to do it. You know, there's all these things that, that I long for that, that just kind of point to the idea that I just kind of think things should go my way. And, and again, we, we need to then hold these things open. God knows that about you. Hmm. But Lord, what is that about? And what might it look like to love my neighbor as myself in that? Yeah. Um, and that, that that's what I that where I think those things get broken open where we should actually pay attention to those things, and and if we pray about them, I think we should then go back to them and then kind of sit with Lord, what what was actually going on there? Like, well, yeah. why did I long for that so badly? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. So as you mentioned, and, and we haven't talked about since the beginning, one of the practical tips, right? We're talking about his book, uh, Where Prayer Becomes Real. And like I mentioned at the beginning, one of the things I love is the practical tips and, and the different types of prayer that you mentioned that I wanted to talk about. And we've talked about praying with a wandering mind. We talked about there the prayer of examine, uh, just other really practical, cool things that you present here uh, that I would encourage people to pick up this book and get. Uh, now, going back to what we talked about at the beginning of this, like, recipe that you have to say things in a certain way. Uh, what we don't see when Jesus said, this is how you should pray. And he gives us the Lord's prayer. Mm -hmm. Jesus didn't finish that prayer by saying in my name, amen. 
and you need to pray. So, so why is it that we feel like we have to finish with saying in Jesus name? Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, <laughs> I, I think obviously that's, that's a fine practice, you know? And, yeah. Um, but I do think we kind of misunderstand that a little bit um, where we're always supposed to pray in Jesus's name that's different than just ending by saying in Jesus's name. Right? I mean, I actually think that many of us don't pray in Jesus's name, even though we end in Jesus's name. Hmm. Um, and, and part of what's going on there is that I, I, I think this is probably on the more theoretical side, one of the things we commonly misunderstand about Christian praying and how it's totally different than its pagan counterparts um, or its other religion counterparts, right? Is that, Prayer now is something that we are invited into. It's not something we start. So God has prayed for us. So the Holy Spirit is our intercessor in the core of our being. The Son has gone beyond the veil. It's our great high priest who now lives in the presence of God. And we're told in Hebrews always lives to intercede for us. And so our prayers actually enter into their praying and we are those who have access to God only in Jesus. That's just Ephesians 2.18. We have access to the Father in the Son by the Spirit. And those prepositions are important because now we get this um, access to the Father in the Son by the Spirit. That, that's exactly how we pray, right? If, if, you, if you grew up in the church, you probably heard, oh, you pray to the Father and the Son by the Spirit. Like, like, like that kind of Trinitarian formula is actually quite a good one. And one of the things it tells us is that we actually, as Christians, we never show up in the presence of God alone. We are always there with and in the Son. Hmm. And so we don't pray in our name because our name doesn't get us in the presence of God. We pray in his name because it is in him that we are in God's presence. It is in him that we have access. And I would say even more particularly, it's in him that we know Father as Father. And so that that's really what's going on. I, I tend to, and in Jesus's name, just because it does kind of remind me, well, I, I don't come to you in my name. Hmm. I come to you in your name, the name you've given over to me. And, and that reality is an important thing to remember, particularly when we struggle in prayer, because our goodness didn't get us into God's presence to begin with. Um, we are there because of Christ. Hmm. Now, kind of along with what you just said, um, we often teach kids talking about praying for our kids. We often teach kids say, dear Jesus, and mm -hmm. to pray to Jesus, Jesus taught us to pray to the father. Is there a distinction? Like, how do we understand that? Do we pray to the God, the father? Do we pray to Jesus? Who do we pray to? Yeah. You know, that, that's a funny one. So actually Fred Sanders, you mentioned earlier, him and I have talked a lot about this. Um, and we both have similar instincts, which always makes me feel better. If, if I'm, if I've got a <laughs> similar instinct as Fred on the Trinity, I'm, I'm, I'm in good company. There you go. Um, you know, one of the, um, I, this is something I want to say carefully because I don't want people to feel like, you know, God's angry at them, you know, or, or they, or they should feel ashamed or something like that for, for praying to one of the other members of the Trinity. But, but I do think the kind of common formula is we pray to the father in and with the son by the spirit so that the kind of goal or telos or orientation of our prayers is to the Father. Now, when we're praying, we're with Jesus. And so kind of talking with Jesus in the presence of the Father, that that this is the one who we, particularly with children, I think we relate to most because he is the image or the, like, he's the guy we can see, right? <laughs> he's, you know, um, I, I don't have as much problem with that as the Spirit. Because my, my worry is when people pray to the Spirit, I worry now that we almost are inevitably in a kind of implicit tritheism hmm. because it's almost the assumption now that the spirit won't get the kind of memo. Like we, we kind of, we're, we're now thinking of the father, son, and spirit kind of two separated out from one another um, as if they're different individuals, but that's not of course Trinitarian belief. We don't, we, in the Trinity, we don't believe that father, son, and spirit are individuals. Um, and so Jesus is unique in the fact that in his humanity as our great high priest, he leads us before the Father. Um, but I would say the, the common mode of it is we are those who pray to the Father. And, and that should be the guiding part of our prayers. And, and now that said, you know, I do think it's important. I, I've met plenty of people who can't 
pray father for very good reasons. Yeah. And that's when you send them to Jesus. And that's when you trust that Jesus carries them before the father. And, you know, each, each of the, when, when we see the, the triune God show up in history, the spirit always points beyond himself to the son. The son always points beyond himself to the father. Like that, that's the kind of movement you see. Well, we come to this if we come to the son and the spirit we can trust that he will lead them to the father but i always want to remind those folks that at some point you know the journey they're on is a, a journey to have fatherhood redeemed hmm. by their heavenly father yeah and, and so the goal is that jesus will lead you to the one who will redefine what father means yeah yeah wow that is so good uh my goodness we are we're at 55 minutes. I have just loved hearing your thoughts mm. and just understanding, I think, the depth of these prayers and how we relate to God in this way. Um, I have some apologetic questions that I really would love for you to answer, and we are running quickly out of time. <laughs> um, kind of some objections. And so if we can, I don't know if we need to run through this quicker. I know you said you could give us a little extra time. Mm. Um, but I guess the, the other common questions I hear is like, why pray if God has ordained the future um, or, you know, if God is sovereign, his will is going to be done. Why pray? Um, and if God can be swo swayed by prayer, then like, is he really in control? So like, what would you say to someone like, why should I pray if God's going to do his will, no matter if I pray or not? Yeah, th that, that's an important question. And, you know, one of the difficulties with it is particularly in a kind of apologetics context. So this is not something I, I expect kind of unbelievers to understand. And, and it's something most Christians don't understand. The problem with how we talk about these questions, you often see this show up in the free will stuff. You certainly see it show up in sovereignty, predestination stuff, is that we start treating God as if he's the largest possible creature. Um, and, and I actually see a lot of what's gone on in the last hundred years it, it, there's, there's been a lot of Christians who've totally misconstrued the classical notion of who God is. God's action and my action don't exist on the same plane of existence. So when you talk about who wills something, God or me or something, like the answer could be yes, because God can work in and through creaturely freedom because mm -hmm. God, God isn't, God doesn't exist within the plane of creaturely realities. And so, you know, you think of the scripture text, although, you know, it's quoting a pagan text, but it's um, in him we live and move and have our being. If we have a God who we actually like all of reality is some degree kind of in him and by him and yet cannot collapse in him and yet stands apart from him in some way. We have a God that is so utterly transcendent that he doesn't fit into how we normally think of such constructs. And so theologically, we'll talk about non-contrastive causalities with God or non-contrastive kind of transcendence, where sometimes people have this idea that God is kind of outside of time, which is true, but he's also totally inside of time <laughs> because, you know, because God doesn't have that relation to creation because God isn't only creatures you have to ask in or out, right? <laughs> Um, and, and, and that's the problem is when you look at classical Christian notions of God is God is so utterly transcendent that he is imminent. And, and that's, that's where our kind of metaphysics breaks down. And that's really where we have to kind of, that, that's where faith calls us to, to say, um, you know, I, I think argumentation could lead us to the fact that it, it is necessary for a God like that to exist, but we're going to have to, by faith, come and say, I'm not going to be able to fathom it yeah. <laughs> and then to kind of, you know, and, and so I, I lay it down and this is precisely, you know, why I think we grab onto Jesus. Cause in Jesus, we do get the image of the invisible God. Um, and, and again, with Jesus, it's, it's the God who is both born of an infant and yet upholds the world by the word of his power simultaneously. Yeah. Be because God and any, honestly, any less than that, it's just not God. Right. And I think that's the problem is, is we, we, we've accepted way too often these kind of enlightenment constructs that collapse Christian notions of deity into kind of mechanistic, um, really, really large creatureliness kind of notions. And I, and, right. and unfortunately that just doesn't, it just doesn't work that way. Um, 
and it did happen around the 18th century, which is where I spent half my time. And so, yeah, yeah <laughs> I actually kind of, you could kind of watch it happen in real time, actually, when you get a Newtonian cosmology coming into to, mm. to the, thought, the thought world, everything gets yeah. mechanized and either God is in it or out it or he is it, right? And And you can map most of our common conceptions on that enlightenment notion, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, if I could end with maybe one big objection that Christians uh, possibly get from a, a skeptical community mm -hmm. and trying to help them know how to respond or uh, to it is, is often when there is a massive tragedy, uh, mm -hmm. a shooting, some event, and Christians saying, hey, my, I I'm praying for you, uh, you often hear this objection like, like that's useless. Like that, mm. the, 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 it's just lulling you into this false sense of accomplishment where you sit back and think you're doing something awesome and you're not doing anything. You can't solve any problems through prayer. Prayer without action is useless. You need to just go out and do something. But then if you did something, then what you're showing is the prayer is kind of irrelevant. So how, how can Christians maybe be thoughtful and give a response to this objection of like when bad things happen, we say, hey, I'm praying for you. And it's like, but, but do something. Don't just pray. But yet we believe that prayer is powerful. How do we or do we just say, hey, you don't understand. I'm going to keep doing it. You know, how, do, how, do, how can we stand up for the, the effectiveness of prayer when the world looks at that and says, you're wasting your time? Just do something practical to help them. Yeah. You know, this is this is a great question because I think it gets to one of the difficulties of living in in a secular age. Hmm. And, and I would say, you know, I, I'm not sure we should actually lead with I'll pray for you. I, I think we should lead with how can I help you? And then we should pray for them. And and because I'm not going to expect an unbeliever to understand how prayer works. Um, I'm not going to expect because, again, you know, You'll see similar things with like, um, you know, an unbeliever would maybe scoff if you prayed for a doctor's steady hand in surgery. I'm like, well, why not just pray that they're healed? Why not just, you know, it's like, right. Like, and it's, it's again, it's, it's, it's treating God as this either or kind of, you know, and, and so I'm not going to make, I'm actually not going to get in debates with that with them because I, Without knowing who God is, they have no hope of understanding the nature of Christian prayer. And so that means we still pray, but we lead with how can I be with you and help you? How can I minister to you in this? And, and what do you need? Hmm. And I think that, the, the, that that will actually kind of bear witness to our activities of prayer better than. And, and there's still sometimes I would say I'm praying for you. Um, you know, some of that, yeah. you know, it's going to be the person and we have to kind of have some knowledge of them based on how they might receive that. I've, I've, I've said that to someone who knew what it meant to me and that's precisely why it was meaningful for her. Mm. And so there's, there's some things like that we have to ask, but, but yeah, I, I think there, we have to have a realism with what a non-believer could understand and what we should expect them to understand. And yeah. prayer isn't one of those things I expect <clears throat> will make a lot of sense. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh man, that is so good. And can I just finish with a fun question actually? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I said that was my last one. I, I lied, I'm sorry. Because um, I looked at my notes and I saw something. So I grew up in a Christian family, in a Christian uh, home, a Christian school. And I play baseball. And before every baseball game, we would pray that we would win the game. And many times we played against another baseball team who's also from a Christian school. And they were probably playing that they would win the game. That's right. Who wins, who wins the game That's when right. we're both this playing, playing to win? This is the Franklin problem again. Like, <laughs> how many people? You had, how big was your school? Were they all praying? Yeah, no, that's funny. You know, it's, it is a funny sort of thing. And, and I, 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 as I listen to my kids pray, this is what's been really interesting because I think there's, I, I'm a little surprised their prayers don't sound more like mine. Like I'm not surprised that in one sense, but they mostly have heard, learned prayer through hearing me pray. Hmm. But their prayers sound exactly like mine did when I was a kid. You know, like, God, I want to win the game tomorrow. Make sure I do well. Make sure, you know, it's like, and, and there's something about that. I think that, see, I'm tempted to correct that. And I don't think that's quite right. At, you know, and, and of course, by the time you get to high school, maybe that needs to be a more corrected. But but there's something when there's a like um, developmentally, you're kind of just inviting God into your desiring. Hmm. 
And there's something kind of misguided about it, right? Because God is still primarily just there to kind of make your desires work. But I think with children, as I've watched my children in this, I'm like, this is something that's really like, there's something that kind of makes God smile in this. <laughs> like that they would think to pray or very detailed prayers. Like, well, I want to score a goal, but I want to do it this way. And I think if the ball did this and if, the, you know, <laughs> it's like, there's something about this that, that is just really good. And it's, yeah. it's bringing God into every aspect of our, of our lives. But yeah, it does get wonky when we start praying. Um, and you think of this professional sports too, you know, you've, you know, you know, you all hear professional athletes talking this way sometimes about, you know, God, help me become a good witness by dominating on the basketball court. Is that really what we're looking for here? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, that's, that's too funny. There is a quick clarification on one thing that you said here. So let me pull this up and get you to clarify something for us. Uh, Simon Rand comments in and says, uh, can Kyle explain his comment that the fa- God, the father, Jesus, the son, and the Holy spirit are not individuals. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good question. So, so this is Christians have never believed that when we talk about the Trinity, we're talking about three individuals. Um, that would be a tritheism, right? So, one of the things that when we think about the divine unity, they are they are, they share one common divine essence, and the traditional tells that 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 means a singular understanding and a singular willing. So you don't have three centers of consciousness all as individual willing agents. And that also means that, that, that their action is united and therefore they're always kind of working in and through and with one another. And so, you know, if you just sit with John 14 through 17, you begin to see um, that maybe most clearly where Jesus talks about the father and their union as one. And, and there's this, this kind of, they're, and even the father-son terminology, like you can't be a father without without a child, you can't be a son without a father, like they're, they're mutually defining. And so the way that gets understood is that if we saw these as individuals, now we'd have three gods who were united by their willing. And that was actually the earmark of Trinitarian heresy in the ancient church. If, okay. if, it's, if it's kind of willing that unites them versus being. So as a singular being, as three persons, we right. have to remember whenever we use the word persons, that doesn't mean individuals. And everyone was always worried about that. I mean, Augustine was right. was profoundly worried that we would say three persons and people would hear individuals. And so that, right. that, that we've always kind of tried to correct that a little bit. But particularly in our age, that's hard. We just yeah, and I just, yeah, I just. Those. Right. And just persons, beings, individuals, those can get confusing. Well, mm-hmm. Kyle, thank you so much. I mean, this was so encouraging to me. Uh, this was, um, uh, I mean, just, just hearing your your explanations on the purpose of prayer in the heart of God and how we relate to him, uh, just I know was encouraging to me and I know is encouraging to other people. So thank you for taking this time and having this conversation uh, today with me. Yeah, of course, Ryan. Thanks so much for having me, brother. Absolutely. Everybody, really, we did not get into as many of the practical details in this book, but hey, you have the book to do that. I just want to hear uh, Kyle's heart and, and, and why he wrote it and answering some of those big questions, but you have the book. Check it out. The link is in the description below. It just came out this week. It's an awesome resource. Uh, if you've enjoyed this show, you probably enjoy some other shows here coming up, like maybe they'll put the Trinity one. That'll pop up later uh, with Fred Sanders there. You can check that out as well as other interviews. Share it with a family friend. If you've enjoyed this, help spread the word. That would be just a huge encouragement to me and continue to think deeply about God and Christianity because they are worth thinking about. See everybody. Have a wonderful rest of your week. God bless. Bye.